0: birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, September 14th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Joan Trumpower Mulholland, civil rights activist. Joan is our first living human in history that we have covered on the show so far. She is 79 today. Happy birthday, Joan. And her legacy and her work are being kept alive via the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation. So for this episode, I feel it's important to mention that Joan is white. When we think of freedom writers and civil rights activists, we often assume the person in question is black. And for a lot of the cases, that's true. But being white doesn't make being a civil rights activist a completely smooth path, especially back then. In her life thus far, Joan has been physically attacked. She's been shot at, dragged out of sit-ins by her hair. Put on the KKK hit list and housed on death row. Even her family and those in her community assumed she was either in a cult or in need of psychiatric help. So Joan was born September fourteenth, nineteen forty-one in D.C. Her family moved to Arlington, Virginia, when she was little. Her mom was actually the first one in her whole family to marry someone that was not from the South. Joan's great-grandparents had actually been slave owners in Georgia, and unfortunately, Joan's parents were pretty avowed segregationists and racists. When Joan's mother fell ill during the first year of Joan's life, they actually hired a black woman to help raise Joan. And this was a pretty interesting choice, given that Joan was raised in a home where the motto was, no matter how bad things got, just be thankful you weren't black. As a child, Joan actually overheard her parents and her uh, aunts and uncles talking about a black man that had been lynched by their home and they weren't discussing, you know, the, the abhorrence or the brutality of it. They were just discussing whether or not he was guilty. As a child, she grew up hearing a lot of racist vitriol at home, and this really clashed with the love-everybody messages that she was getting at church. She recalled singing the children's hymn, "Um, Jesus Loves Little Children, with its all-inclusive but still pretty offensive message that Jesus loves all the children, whether they are red, yellow, black, or white. The juxtaposition in what she was singing about and what she was actually living in really struck a chord in her, even when she was that young. According to her, the turning point came when she was visiting family in Georgia, and she went for a walk with a little friend of hers, and they dared each other to walk into the black part of town. It was called N-word town. And they walked through it, and Joan said that she remembered that no one there said anything to her, but she said that the way they kind of shrunk back and became invisible, like it really impacted her deeply. So by the age of 10, she knew that her destiny lay in being an active part of the civil rights movement, even though her family was completely not on board with this. This passion for equality caused a lot of problems between her and her parents, and eventually they just became uh, estranged. Once she finished high school, she wanted to go to a small college in Kentucky or Ohio, but her mom forbade her from doing that because she was afraid the school would become integrated. So she insisted that Joan go to Duke University, which showed no signs of integrating. Joan didn't feel like she was living up to her potential or fulfilling her destiny, so she dropped out after a year. This was also due in part to the fact that she was getting a ton of pressure from the Dean of Women there to stop participating in civil rights activism. In 1960, when she was 19, Joan went to her first sit-in at a local segregated lunch counter in Northern Virginia, and the store filled with all these white men that were holding signs and yelling racist threats, and some of them even wore Nazi armbands. The local police arrived uh, to de-escalate the situation, and they cleared a path through the throng so the activists could get into waiting getaway cars. Uh, Since Joan was not only white but from the South, she sort of stuck out like a sore thumb, and the police who arrested her assumed that she was just mentally ill. She continued to attend sit-ins throughout the civil rights movement, doing almost three dozen in the four years she'd be involved. Joan even started to keep paper in the lining of her skirt so she could keep a diary about her arrests and her time spent in jail. One of her diary entries, she wrote, I think all the girls in here are gems, but I feel more in common with the Negro girls and I wish I was locked in with them instead of these atheist Yankees. A few weeks after the sit-in, the lunch counters in Northern Virginia desegregated, but Joan and her activist family knew that there was much more work, so they moved on. On May 4, 1961, the Freedom Riders, a group of 13 activists, got onto two buses leaving from D.C. headed towards New Orleans. The goal was to challenge bus segregation in a peaceful manner. On Mother's Day, the first of the two buses rolled into Anniston, Alabama, a notorious hotbed of KKK activity. Just outside the city lines, the bus driver got out of the bus, he talked to someone else outside of the bus, got back on the bus, kind of flashed this weird smile at everyone in the back of the bus and drove into town. The town was deserted. There was not a soul on the streets. Every sign of human activity was absent, almost as if this had been orchestrated. Suddenly, this mob of clansmen appear. They rush the bus, they slash the tires, the bus is disabled. It kind of struggled along for a bit, trying to escape before finally breaking down in front of a church. A firebomb was launched into the bus, filling the space with flames and smoke, and the men and women tried to rush out the doors, but the clansmen held them shut, barricading everyone inside this burning bus. And up and down the street, churchgoers start pouring out of the churches and kind of moseying over with their children to watch a bunch of college students burn alive. What finally pushed the mob back was either the fuel tank exploding or an undercover state investigator waving a gun around. Accounts vary. The people poured out of the bus. They were coughing and gagging. They couldn't see. They had smoke in their eyes and the Klansmen just rushed them. They start beating them with baseball bats. Finally, highway patrol shows up and they begin firing off their guns to break up the mob. The second bus pulls into Anson an hour later, and it was also overtaken by another group of Klansmen who beat everyone into either semi or total unconsciousness. Later, it was uncovered that these acts of violence were actually planned and coordinated by both Birmingham, Alabama, Police Commissioner Bull Connor. He is a total piece of work. And Police Sergeant Tim Cook, who was an open KKK supporter the injured were taken to Annison Memorial Hospital. Most of them were refused care. The few of the more seriously injured were allowed to see a doctor, but they were kicked out of the hospital at two o'clock in the morning because the staff was afraid that the mob of angry people outside were going to come inside and just start to destroy the hospital. So these activists, they're injured, they're bleeding, they're alone in the middle of the night, they're trapped outside of a hospital. There's a growing mob around them that was becoming more and more bold by the moment. Thankfully, The Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was a local civil rights activist, sent cars with openly armed people to basically escort slash rescue the Freedom Riders. A lot of people thought this would be the end of the Freedom Riders, but thankfully they were very much mistaken. A second wave was coming and it included Joan and a few other civil rights activists, including Diane Nash. Stokely Carmichael, Hank Thompson, and a few others. They headed towards Mississippi via train, and the plan was to board a bus and then go on through the south. But when they arrived in Jackson, Mississippi, at a segregated train station, everyone was rounded up and arrested for refusing to leave. The men and women were taken to the Parchman Penitentiary in the Delta area, not far from where Emmett Till had been murdered. This place had the worst reputation and it wasn't uncommon for inmates to just disappear there. Joan shared in the documentary about her life when they found out they were going to this notorious prison, which was legendary for its treatment of prisoners. Her and the others in their group were in total fear for their lives. It was the worst prison in the country at the time. And allegedly, the uh, governor of Mississippi at the time, Ross Barnett, had told the guards when it came to dealing with freedom riders to break their spirits, not their bones. Once the activists arrived at the prison, they were separated by gender. The women were stripped. They were given uh, standard-issue prison skirts and forced to undergo gynecological examinations by a matron who dipped her glove hand into a bucket of what they thought think is Lysol between each examination. Jones said that to this day, she, she can't stand the smell of Lysol. Because the group was separated by gender, the women didn't know that the men were being treated even worse. Being beaten by the guards for refusing to say Yasa was not uncommon. The guards at that prison were on the absolute lowest rung of society. They were paid really, big, barely anything, I think like $45 a week. They were usually... Uneducated, and most of them ranged from being either extremely racist to just being flat out flagrant clansmen They had no power or authority in the outside world whatsoever, but as soon as they entered that hellhole, they were kings, and no one questioned how badly they treated the prisoners, especially those of color. All the Freedom Riders were split from each other in the hope that this would finally break their spirit. To ensure that each person was being isolated, they were placed into death row, because uh, those were all single cells. And they kept there for two months. Some of their cells were right next to the gas chamber. A lot of people on the bus were behind bars for just a month before posting bail, but since Joan didn't really have any other plan, she spent the entire two months behind bars working off her $200 fine. Every day that she was in prison, $3 was subtracted from her fine. That same year, Hamilton E. Holmes and Charlene Hunter Galt became the first African-American students at the University of Georgia. Angry white mobs gathered outside their dormitories, snatching property and threatening them, but this made Joan think... If whites are going to riot when black students go to white schools, what are they going to do if a white student goes to a black school? So she enrolled at Tougaloo College in Jackson, becoming the first ever white student to do so. It was there that she met Martin Luther King Jr. and Medgar Evans. A white girl being in a college full of black men was a segregationist's worst nightmare, and there were concerns being voiced by everyone, from her parents to law enforcement, about her possibly dating or becoming involved with a man of color. She was getting letters from strangers explaining how misguided she was and what a crime against nature it was to have the races mix. There were crosses sometimes burned on campus, occasionally there were drive-by shootings. The community even tried to shut down the entire college, but it was able to remain open because its charter predated Jim Crow laws. As Dr. Robert Luckett, director of the Margaret Walker Center, said in Jones' documentary, she wasn't an outside agitator. She was a white Southern woman. And for that purpose, she was even more dangerous to the white supremacist power structure because she was one of their own who grew up to see that the system was wrong and she rejected it and she actively opposed it. So the fact that she was not only white and Southern, but also a woman flew in the face of the white supremacist argument that white women needed to be protected from black men. And that was the community service that the KKK provided her refusal to abide by Jim Crow laws destroyed the entire flimsy excuse of white supremacy being something that white Southern ladies wanted and needed. So Joan's parents were becoming increasingly distraught by her behavior, and they sort of alternated between attempting to shame her and attempting to bribe her. They even tried to take her to Europe in 1962 to sort of try to make her forget what they thought was a, a phase. So she went on the trip, but when she came back, she picked up right where she left off. Joan wasn't supposed to be at the sit-in at the counter of a Woolworths in Jackson, Mississippi on May 28, 1963. She'd been working a picket line farther up the street, but as soon as the picket had got going, cops turned up, they arrested everybody else, so Joan decided to go down the street to the sit-in, where 13 other activists were, to see if she could be of assistance, but she had no idea just how violent and volatile it was becoming. An angry mob of, of hundreds of white men and boys had descended on the store, swarming around the activists who were quietly seated on stools at the counter. A former cop dragged one of the men off the stool and began to punch and kick him as the crowd watched. Another man came in holding a knife. They were throwing coffee and ketchup and sugar on the activists' heads and screaming insults in their ears. As Joan entered the store, these uh, racist protesters assumed that she was on their side, right? White woman coming in. Oh, she must be on our side. Until she pushed through them and she took a seat at the counter. She was the only white woman in the group. And this seemed to like further enrage the racist. And it started to scream at her, calling her all these vile names and making these rude sexual comments. Joan and a classmate named Annie Moody were sitting together on stools when this guy grabbed both of them by their hair and dragged them out of the restaurant. Thankfully, there was a cop outside and he arrested the man for doing that. And Joan and Annie turned around and went right back to their stools. When a white Tougaloo professor named John Salter sat down and joined the group, the violence became suddenly totally targeted on him. He had cigarettes put out in the back of his neck. Someone punched him in the face with brass knuckles. Someone else threw water mixed with pepper into his eyes. And where are the cops in all this? So... Because of this weird legal loophole, the Supreme Court had decided that police could not go into the store to arrest anyone during the sit-ins unless they were invited in by the store manager. So the cops essentially just waited outside, watching through the window while white people continued to stream into the store to physically assault people sitting at the counter. They watched it, telling white civil rights activists that were showing up and demanding that the cops help. This is your fault. You guys started it. Allegedly, the FBI was there as well, and they also chose to wait outside. At two o'clock in the afternoon, three hours after the violence started, the president of Tougaloo University got wind of what was going on. He shows up. He begs the store owner, please close the store. This is getting incredibly dangerous. The store owner says no. The president finally manages to get a hold of someone at the Woolworths National Office, and that person calls the store manager and orders him to close the store. What's interesting when you look at the archival footage, and there's a lot out there, you see that the vast majority of the mob and almost all the men are actually really young. They look to be like they're in their late teens or early 20s, just angry Southern boys that had been indoctrinated by both the Southern public school curriculum and their parents. They just grew up on this idea that black people are inferior and that if they step out of their place, you need to put them back into their place with violence if necessary. They're angry, they're ignorant, they're misguided, they're racist, and they've been raised on hate. Joan actually calls them the tools of the power structure, which I really like. This was the most legendarily violent sit-in. If you haven't seen any of the footage, I urge you to watch it. It's probably one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen on tape, and even writing about it is actually making me pretty nauseous. The absolute brutality and inhumanity of these angry racist white people is like something... It's this made out of a horror movie. The reporters and the photographers who captured this said that it was the worst thing they had covered in the civil rights movement. It was thankfully not for nothing as this huge display of power and unity caused the civil rights activists of Jackson to petition harder, support more ferociously, they staged more sit-ins, and membership in racial equality organizations grew drastically. This, of course, caused further rage and pushback from the mayor of Jackson, the city council, and the segregationists, and this culminated in the murder of Medgar Evers, the head of the NAACP in Mississippi. He was shot in the back by a white supremacist while walking into his house in front of his wife and children on June 12th, 1963. He died holding pamphlets and t-shirts he had just picked up that said, Jim Crow has got to go. Shortly after his murder, Joan was made aware of the fact that there was a hit put out on her by the KKK. Apparently, there were posters up at their meeting locations that had all the faces of the most prominent civil rights activists. Whenever they managed to kill one, they would cross it out. Medgar Evers' face had been crossed out. Joan's had not yet been. Joan had known Medgar from her time at Tougaloo, and she respected the work he was doing. To this day, she visits his grave from time to time, and when Obama was elected president, she went to visit the grave to share the good news with him. A few months later, on August 28, 1963, Joan attended the march on Washington, writing to it with her fellow Woolworth sit-in partners. She had been staying in D.C. for a few months planning this demonstration, which would be one of the largest civil rights gatherings in the history of the country. Joan was working in the press tent, and as a result, she was privy to the scripts of some of the speeches given. Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech wasn't in the original version, at least according to Joan, but something that he kind of ad-libbed a bit at the end. John Lewis, who we just lost a few months ago, apparently had a speech that was incredibly passionate and had to be edited down so as not to inflame the Kennedy administration. A few days after the march, on September 15th, 1963, the KKK bombed a Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama, right before Sunday morning service. This church had been a meeting hub for activists who would go out to the streets before being attacked by police dogs and shot down with fire hoses, so it was very much identified as a meeting place for African-Americans, which made it a prime target for the Klan. Fifteen adults were injured and four children were killed in the bombing. Addie Mae Collins, 14, Cynthia Wesley, 14, Carol Robertson, 14, and Carol Denise McNair, 11. The survivors poured out of the church, only to be met by police officers shooting over their heads, ostensibly to break up the mob. Shotgun shells and glass from the terrorist attack are housed in the Smithsonian. The memorial service for the four girls attracted hundreds of mourners spilling out into the streets. Speakers had to be set up outside so people standing in the street, including Joan, could listen. Martin Luther King delivered the final words. Between the attacks on the Freedom Riders and the violent counter sit-ins and the church bombings, it seemed that segregationists would literally do anything to stop people of color from being treated like human beings. In May of 1964, Joan had a run-in with the KKK in Mississippi, which was swiftly becoming the worst state for people of color and civil rights activists. There was white people brutally attacking black people who were just walking down the street. So the students had returned to Tougaloo for graduation when Annie Mooney, who was at the lunch counter sitting at Woolworth, advised her co activists that she had a feeling something was going to happen and to be careful going to Canton that night. This was a notorious hotbed of KKK activity. But Joan got into a car that night to go to a meeting at a church in Canton with some other activists, including Hamid Kizilbash, a Pakistani immigrant. Everyone was warned to lock their doors and keep their windows rolled up. They hadn't even gone a block when they started to be followed by a white car. It followed them to the church and was there when they emerged. There was no police around which was odd. There was however another car in front of them. As soon as their car turned off the highway onto a rural road to head back to campus, the two cars boxed them in, forcing them to stop. The men surrounded the cars. They were not wearing white hoods but their behavior was pretty clannish. Holding crowbars, they stepped up to the car and they get a bang on the hood. Hamid rolls down his window to ask them what they want and a man reaches in and grabs them trying to pull them out of the car. Thinking really quickly, another activist that was in the car lied, and he said that Hamid was actually this Indian civil rights activist who'd been on the news recently and tried to persuade the Klansmen that if they killed a foreigner, it was going to reflect really badly on America. So the men around the car began to openly discuss the fact that they were planning on lynching all the people in the car, and they're now conflicted as to whether they should do it or not. Sort of like a gross racist Southern version of that scene in The Hobbit Where all the dwarves are tied up in sacks waiting to hear how the trolls are going to kill them. After the Klansmen decided to let the activists go, the activists made their way to the highway patrol office to report the crime. The officers there told them they were not interested and needed to go back to Canton. They next tried the governor's mansion as he had made a public statement saying that there was no violence in Mississippi and if there was he wanted to be the first to know. So the group walked to meet up to the marble steps dripping blood, but when the doorman opened the mansion door and realized that they were civil rights activists, He slammed the door in their face, and they finally just took Hamid to the hospital. At the end of the night, though, one thing about the conversation the Klansmen were having around the car while debating whether or not to kill them stuck in Joan's mind. They had made it very clear they were planning on killing people and were just looking for the right opportunity. They had discussed the fact that they had a location picked out and everything, and they wanted to do their part to stop what the media was calling Freedom Summer. They found the opportunity a few weeks later. Michael and Rita Schwerner were a young, married Jewish couple who were involved in the civil rights movement in Mississippi as well. They had been recruited from the North, and part of their indoctrination was to come to the Reverend Ed King's house, where a more experienced activist would give them the lay of the land, so to speak. Joan was selected to fill them in on what was going on and what they should know about being a white activist in Mississippi. On June 21, 1964, Michael, who was 24, and two fellow activists, James Cheney, a black 19-year-old, and Andrew Goodman, a white 20-year-old, were arrested for an alleged traffic violation. They were put into jail temporarily, refused access to a phone, and then let go after dark. The three men began to drive back home in the pitch black of the Mississippi night when suddenly flashing patrol lights pulled up behind them. Two cars, including one of the officer who had arrested them earlier that evening, Cecil Price, pulled up behind them. When the doors of both cars opened, the KKK stepped out. Michael, James, and Andrew were kidnapped, taken to a rural road on the outskirts of Philadelphia, Mississippi, and murdered. The two white men, Michael and Andrew, were shot. James, the black man, was chain whipped and then shot. Their bodies were not found until 44 days later. The case got a lot of media attention, causing Michael's widow, Rita, to assert that if two of the victims had not been white, nobody would have said anything. Following her four years in the civil rights movement, Joan returned to Mississippi to complete her college education. Even with her background and her degree, she was hired as an entry-level clerk at the Smithsonian. They told her that since she was a woman, they just expected her to get married and have babies and leave anyway, so there was no point in giving her an important position. She eventually moved to Virginia, where she worked as a teacher's aide while raising her five sons until she retired. One of her five sons, Loki Mulholland, helms Joan's eponymous foundation. My sources, which I encourage you to check out if you want to know more, include Joan's website, joanTrumpHourMulholland.org, the 2013 award-winning documentary on her life produced by her son called An Ordinary Hero, The True Story of Joan Trump Hour Mulholland, and good old Wikipedia. There's also a great book called Breach of Peace, Portraits of the 1961 Mississippi Freedom Writers by Eric Etheridge, which is a collection of mugshots of all the freedom writers and stories of their roles in the movement, including Jones. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Joan Trump Hour Mulholland. Please join me tomorrow, September 15th, when we celebrate the birth and life of Dr. Edward Boucher, the first African-American PhD physicist. See you then.